You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, archaeologists, children, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area are the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which together protect 4,581 square miles. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, known as NOAA, is a leading science agency for ocean and atmospheric sciences. NOAA has a global network of measuring greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and in August this year, in 2016, the monthly mean of carbon dioxide detected in the atmosphere reached just over 400 parts per million, which is way above what scientists deem as safe. All over the world, policymakers, economists, politicians, scientists, communities, and individuals are searching for ways to reduce carbon emissions but continue to produce energy sustainably. While we as a global community seek ways to reduce emissions, there are also efforts afloat to increase carbon sequestration, which remove carbon from the atmosphere and provide ecosystem services. So today, we're going to focus on the blue carbon concept with NOAA Ecosystem Science Advisor, Dr. Ariana Sutton-Greer. So stay tuned. In just a moment, we'll be back with that interview. Welcome back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents, and today we're talking about blue carbon. And on the phone with me, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ariana Sutton-Greer. Ariana, you're live on KWMR. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for calling while you're on the road traveling. I really appreciate it. Um, So I wanted to just dive right in because I was getting ready talking about the show with people, and I talked to them about blue carbon. People were like, what's that? So let's just start with the basic concept. What is blue carbon? Sure. So there's actually a number of colorful terms that sometimes get applied to carbon. Um, So I actually usually start by talking about what's green carbon and what's black carbon first to sort of frame this, this picture. So green carbon is the carbon taken up and stored by vegetation on land. And oftentimes we think about forests as being a really important green carbon sink. Um, and it's green because plants are green and plants are what are taking up that, that carbon. Now, black carbon is the carbon emitted from the mining and burning of fossil fuels, as well as from the burning of forests and other land use change. Um, so here, black, again, thinks things like oil and gas or soot from forest fires. Okay, so then blue carbon is the term that we use to talk about carbon taken up and stored in coastal and marine ecosystems. And I actually... Um, like to differentiate the part of that that's sort of the deep open water marine systems that take up carbon, and then also the coastal systems. And here I'm really talking about coastal wetlands, so tidal marshes, seagrasses, and mangroves. 
and they actually only make up about 0.2% of the ocean surface, um, of that ocean coastal surface. So they actually contribute about 47% of the carbon burial in marine uh, and coastal sediments. So just under half of it is being done by those coastal systems, those coastal wetlands. Um, and so that's what we mean when we say blue carbon, and in particular, coastal blue carbon. So when you say it just makes up 2% of the ocean surface, is that the current um, estimation in terms of the current amount of wetlands versus what we historically had? Yeah, it's 0.2%, oh, so it's 0.2. even smaller. <laughs> um, and yeah, that, that's current distribution. Um, and we do know we've lost some of these habitats. We've probably lost um, close to 50% of those habitats in many places. Um, but it's still a very small fraction of that total, if you think about the surface of the ocean versus the surface of our, our coastal ecosystems right along the fringes of many of our continents. Um, it's, it's still a very, very small percentage in comparison. But a huge, huge, incredible uptake of carbon. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it, it, it is really amazing. These, these ecosystems are actually burying carbon at, at rates that are greater than 10 times as much on a per unit area as most forested systems. And so that's why there's such impressive carbon sinks is that they are burying amazing amounts of carbon in their soils. So that really distinguishes blue carbon systems from other plant-based um, carbon sinks because forests tend to, t- tend to store most of their carbon in biomass, so in the wood, in the, in the branches, some of it in the soil. But the majority of it's actually in biomass, whereas in these uh, wetland systems, the majority of it is in the soil. So it's in a place where we can't see it. And I think that's part of the reason why the conversation about blue carbon has been growing in about the last, say, six to eight years. But prior to that, we weren't thinking of these systems as impressive carbon sinks the way they are, because you don't see the carbon. It's buried underground. So as a reverse on that, because of that incredible uptake of carbon, if we destroy blue carbon, uh, blue habitat, coastal carbon uptake systems, do we also uh, release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere when we actually take away these systems? Yeah, it's really a double whammy in terms of losing climate benefits because you not only lose the impressive sequestration that you're getting every year. So if you think of sequestration, think of think of like a bank account. And the sequestration is what's going in every month or every year. Think of it annually for these systems. It's like your annual income that's going into your checking account. So we lose that annual income if we destroy this ecosystem. But the other thing we lose is if you think of your bank account, hopefully everybody's bank account has at least a little bit in, in savings already. And in these wetland ecosystems, there is an amazing amount of carbon in that, quote, savings or stored already in the soils. And so when we degrade or destroy these ecosystems, what was a really impressive natural carbon sink becomes a very impressive carbon source, another anthropogenic or human-based source of carbon to the atmosphere. And the reason for that is that part of the main reason we are, they are such good carbon sinks is that the soils are anaerobic for most of the time. And what I mean by that is there's no oxygen or very little oxygen in the soils. And that's because they're underwater for most of the time. And as a result, they're waterlogged and there's not a lot of oxygen present. That slows the decomposition or the degradation of organic material. So that that's what makes them such impressive carbon sinks. The organic material gets trapped in the soils and then doesn't decompose. If we destroy or degrade these systems, what tends to happen is we drain them, we dig them up, and we expose that oxygen-poor soil 
to the atmosphere, which has plenty of oxygen in it, and that carbon starts to to decompose, and uh, basically we lose our storage. So I understand that um, in the United States, the most common blue carbon habitat we have would be wetlands, but it's actually not the best at sequestering carbon compared to some other types of habitats around the world. Can you talk about some of those other types of uh, coastal wetland habitats that are really good at sequestering carbon? Well, yeah. So we are actually lucky in the United States to have all three blue carbon ecosystems. We have we do have a lot of salt marshes, you were pointing out, um, and tidal marshes. But we do also have a lot of seagrasses. And we also have some mangroves, um, particularly down in, in Florida and a little bit along the Gulf. Um, and mangroves are really impressive carbon sinks um, because they not only have that soil component we were talking about that's so important in all of these blue carbon, carbon ecosystems, but then because they're standing biomass, there's the wood of the mangrove trees, you get an extra added bonus because it's a forested wetland type. Um, so you get the soil storage as well as additional storage in, in the biomass. So, so they really are um, very, very impressive carbon sinks. And in other parts of the world, that's the majority of some of the blue carbon habitats that exist in many of the more uh, tropical, warmer countries. How about, um, you were talking about how this stuff is stored in the soil, but what about those seagrasses and kelp in itself and, and phytoplankton as other sources for taking up carbon? It sounds like they may not um, store it as long as the soil would. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I get this question a lot um, in terms of why are we not talking about kelp or phytoplankton as much. So it turns out, and I actually um, have a review paper coming out that discusses this very clearly because this is a very important conversation that comes up in a lot of policy contexts. It turns out that um, kelp are a very important part of the carbon cycle in these coastal to marine ecosystems. You know, they, they exist kind of at that boundary between uh, land ecosystems and deeper ocean um, ecosystems. And they are very important parts of the carbon cycle and very important parts of um, coastal food webs because they do photosynthesize and, and take up a lot of carbon and make biomass in the form of kelp. Um, but they tend to be very yummy, very digestible, degradable um, material. And so the kelp, again, as I said, is a really important part of the food web. It's a very important food source for a lot of, um, a lot of organisms, not to mention providing habitat and, and, and refuge habitat and, and, and uh, security for, for other organisms. But they don't actually sequester carbon long-term, and that's because there is no pathway from kelp into deep long-term storage in uh, sediments or soils. Um, so you, you really don't have that long-term carbon sequestration in kelp. Now, when it comes to phytoplankton, the answer is a little different. Phytoplankton um, are also incredibly productive uh, at taking up carbon and, and growing. They clearly support entire marine food chains on, on, on just, you know, that basic process that phytoplankton are doing. Um, and so they do take up a lot of carbon, but again, it tends to be very quickly consumed and, and eaten up in most cases by other organisms. And as soon as something is eaten, then it basically gets decomposed and the organism is going to blow off CO2, right? We all respire. Um, when we eat food, we actually break that food down and then we respire out the CO2. That's exactly what all the organisms in the marine environment are doing as well. So that phytoplankton is a really important part, a base part of that food chain. Now, some of the phytoplankton, a fairly small fraction, but some of it does actually sink below the really productive top surface layer of the ocean, and a small fraction of it gets incorporated into marine sediments long-term. So it is a pathway for long-term carbon sequestration. 
Um, and it's an important one globally. Interestingly, we don't tend to talk about phytoplankton when we talk about our blue carbon efforts. And that's mostly um, from the logistics side, perspective of it in terms of most of the phytoplankton exists in international waters. So it's not clear who, if anyone, would own it or would try to manage it. The other issue is that when it comes to management of that particular carbon uh, storage mechanism, the only real mechanism that's been proposed for how to try to increase carbon sequestration in phytoplankton is to do iron fertilization of the oceans. And that actually comes with a lot of scientific uncertainty about whether it even works to increase productivity. And there's a lot of concern um, from environmental scientists and ecologists that it would actually do more damage to do iron fertilization than it would do good. And, you know, we often want to do, you know, we want to try and do no harm when doing um, science or other policy uh, management decisions. So basically at the moment, phytoplankton is not a very climate policy friendly opportunity because there's no really good way to try to manage that carbon and try to increase the sequestration. Whereas with these coastal habitats, we can manage them. We can manage them with carbon in mind, which really just means managing a healthy coastal ecosystem. And because we're losing these ecosystems at high rates around the world, um, we have an opportunity to better manage them, to protect them where they're threatened, and to restore them where they've been lost or degraded. And so that's really why the blue carbon efforts have focused just on those three coastal systems I talked about and not on some of these other uh, habitats that are important as part of the carbon cycle, may even have a carbon sequestration role, but are very difficult when it comes to the policy and management considerations. How about eelgrass, though, since that is so close to these coastal habitats? Yes, and, and eelgrass, are definitely, that is considered one of the important coastal um, blue carbon ecosystems. And, and uh, there's evidence that, in it, that there, there's high variability in the eelgrasses, and there's definitely a need for additional data when it comes to our seagrasses, all different species. Um, and actually, some of the work that I'm currently doing with the Con Commission on Environmental Cooperation is focused right now on improving our mapping data and our carbon measurements in Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Um, in seagrasses. But we, um, we generally know that seagrasses are important at sequestering carbon. And then depending on where you're located and which species and which conditions, they're either really, really big sinks or, or somewhat smaller sinks, but generally are still considered an important carbon sink. Also quite a bit of buffering in a local watershed, I understand as well, in terms of regulating pH um, during the day and the nighttime. Yeah, there's growing evidence. It's really still very cutting edge and new science, but suggesting that um, seagrass as well as other ecosystems such as kelp or um, other macroalgae can basically have a local buffering ability um, against some of the ocean acidification problems. Um, so in some places where shellfish is being grown or corals, are um, really needing some local buffering or protection from ocean acidification, there's evidence that we may be able to try to manage for some of these other systems like seagrasses or kelp to try to help um, with getting some of that local buffering. And so the way that works is that because the plants are taking up CO2 because they're photosynthesizing, they're removing CO2 from the water column, which then temporarily means that uh, the effects of climate change and the additional CO2 in the, in the ocean that dissolves in the ocean can actually be buffered locally so that you might even get anywhere from half a pH unit, maybe as much as one pH unit, but definitely half a pH unit um, increase, right, so that locally there's that small buffering against those ocean acidification effects 
Now, this is still some, some early research. We're still really trying to figure out exactly how often this can happen and, and um, whether there's best management practices that could be used. But it's very exciting. There's actually folks out in California looking at this. There's been folks in um, Washington State looking at this because of the shellfish industry there that's so important. And you have folks on the East Coast in New England looking at this, too. Um, and, and again, where there's an important shellfish industry, this is really an interesting, exciting topic to see whether there can be these cross-ecosystem boundary service flows. So basically one ecosystem providing a service to another that can help with that ocean acidification buffering. That sounds great. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Ariana Sutton-Greer, and we're talking about blue carbon, coastal ecosystems for helping to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So something that keeps coming up for me as I think about these coastal habitats is sea level rise and the pace of which we're expecting sea level rise to happen. How many of these habitats will be able to continue to keep up with sea level rise in terms of building out as sea level rises? Yeah, that is another really great question that that comes up a lot. And and it's really important to think about. So um, it's also one that I would say the scientists are working very hard to, to do a better job of addressing and answering that question. What I think is really exciting is that some of the most recent stuff that I'm seeing in the literature um, is is really suggesting that Coastal um, marshes, tidal marshes in particular, um, are very resilient to sea level rise. They have had, they, they actually have survived long periods of time, oftentimes hundreds and, and actually thousands of years. And the way they survive is to con- continue to accumulate soil. And they do that through two different mechanisms. One of them is uh, as water flows through the tidal marsh systems, through that vegetation, the water slows as it's having to make its way through the vegetation, and you get sediment that settles out. So for some coastal wetlands, the, the sediment piece is really an important pathway for um, continuing to have that elevation gain. Um, at, in all systems, I think there's some role for sediment, and there's also some role for the second pathway, which is actually the accumulation of organic material. So that's both plant roots, and also dying back of the of the plant parts, the shoots and the leaves, um, but then get incorporated into the soil. And for some wetland systems, that's an even more important pathway than the sediment pathway, but most of them are some kind of combination of both. And through those two mechanisms, um, it's, it's really very, um, very heartening, actually, some of the research suggesting that coastal tidal marshes are very likely to keep up with not only the current rates of sea level rise, but also even accelerated rates of sea level rise in the future. Now, I need to put a caveat on that, which is that they have to be healthy coastal ecosystems, which means um, coastal wetlands, which means we can't have done other things to them to degrade them, like pumping them full of uh, nutrient waste, extra nitrogen or phosphorus. That speeds up decomposition, and then they can't necessarily um, accumulate enough uh, sediment and organic material to keep up. We also can't change the hydrology into those systems. And so one of the places where in the United States we are losing uh, basically the most wetlands annually, and, and probably um, folks are fairly familiar with this, is in the Gulf, where, you know, you often hear we're losing a football field, you know, every uh, half an hour, or, or I, I don't remember exactly what the statistic is. It's, it's incredible how quickly we're, we're losing wetlands down there. Part of the reason for that is that we have changed so many things about those wetlands. We've changed their hydrology. They're not getting the sediment they used to get because we've, we've due to flooding concerns in the area, we've basically completely replumbed 
the water system down there, and the Mississippi doesn't flood into those coastal wetlands the way it used to. So they aren't getting the sediment supply they used they used to. We're also pumping out groundwater. We're pumping out oil. We're doing a bunch of things that cause extra additional subsidence of the land, so that wetlands are actually sinking uh, when they otherwise would not normally be sinking. Um, so there's a number of factors contributing to the fact that those systems are greatly stressed, and as a result, they're having a hard time and are really failing in many cases with keeping up with sea level rise. But again, healthy coastal ecosystems, the evidence really suggests that in many cases, they will be able to keep pace with sea level rise um, if they can maintain levels of sediment input and then levels of organic input um, that they've been able to do for hundreds of thousands of years already. So interesting. This is so fascinating. So what about, I mean, are you familiar with San Francisco Bay in terms of the ecology of San Francisco? Because the bay and up the watershed have been so altered by um, filling in and rerouting water. I'm curious, what about the upland, the up areas of San Francisco Bay? Not so much on the coast, but maybe upwards a little bit. Yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with with the area, and there's actually a great deal of interest in blue carbon in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have some of our primary experts located out there um, in the United States, some of our primary experts. So it's it's a topic that's definitely of interest. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the things I I didn't mention previously, but I do think is important to consider is in some places we will definitely have wetlands that can't keep up for whatever reason with sea level rise. And um, so it is important to think about what what I would term assisted migration. So basically making sure that we don't have what can be called coastal squeeze. And that's where development, whether it's a road or a building, a community, some kind of hard structure that is preventing the inland migration of coastal wetlands. Um, and, And the more we can prevent those kinds of barriers from being in place, we will then prevent that coastal squeeze from happening so that ecosystems, as they need to, those coastal systems can move inland, move upland um, as sea level rise changes. And so I could definitely see that that might play a part in um, the San Francisco area as well as other areas. Um, the other thing I know that's happened in San Francisco is that um, with, with a lot of the hydrological changes, there are places that are now well below sea level because a lot of the organic-rich soils have burned off over decades of farming and, and other uses. Um, the interesting thing is that some of the evidence from that area, some of the research suggests that if you restore the hydrology, um, the wetland plant community will actually start to, will, will definitely come back and will actually start to accumulate organic material in the soil at a very rapid rate, perhaps allowing those, those soils with enough time to basically restore back to uh, the the current sea level. So they would not necessarily have to stay below sea level forever. But again, that means restoring the hydrology and restoring conditions that are more like a wetland and not using it as prime agricultural area. So this is one of those things where we're dealing with trade-offs of different human uses and societies have to understand those trade-offs and then make educated, informed decisions about what needs to happen where and, and do their land use planning with all of that in mind because it's impossible oftentimes to get all the benefits one might want to get out of a particular parcel of land. We just had an area open up last year, the Sonoma Bay lands, that was um, diked farmland historically. And with many, many partners in play, they restored the water flow, removed the dike. And it's incredible to go out there now to see how much has changed with the water just naturally returning to where it used to be. 
And it provided a lot of inspiration of like, wow, if we could just do this more, there's so many ecosystem services that could happen. And it's a it's a great place. People can hike out along the edge. It's right off Route 37 here in um, southern Sonoma County. So it's That's great. wonderful. I, I would mention just a couple other places I know of. I know that there's a project at the Elkhorn Slough and then also at Seal Beach, where they're definitely looking at how restoration influences carbon sequestration. Um, and then there's another project at Rush Ranch, which is part of the San Francisco Bay National Estuarine Research Reserve. And you can definitely visit the Rush Ranch site as part of the near site. Um, so it's open to the public. And so I would encourage people who are interested in this to go check those sites out. Fantastic. Um, we're going to be coming up on a break in just a little bit. But you really brought up a point here about how we know this this incredible services that these coastal wetlands play, but what a conflict with development agencies and development in general. And where do you see this conversation going in terms of uh, local communities and counties taking this into consideration? Because development is money and people and people need to go somewhere. And here we are really trying to make these buffers bigger and bigger. But I'm curious, you know, how is it going on the national and local conversations, I guess, in terms of adopting more of these restoration efforts? Yeah. Um, and and I think that's a really important point. Um, I actually think that we have um, perhaps, maybe, I think we'll have to look back, history will tell, of course. But um, I think we may have hit a turning point in the conversation when we're thinking about coastal development versus coastal restoration and protection. And I think part of the reason we may have hit that turning point is that um, after Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, um, when New York got hit as hard as it did and Boston was really only spared due to sort of some luck and some timing in the storm and when it hit, um, we have had a real change in the conversation and the thinking about coastal resilience and the resilience of our communities. And uh, so it's not that there isn't still going to be coastal development and that we still love to live by the coast. You know, we have about 40% of our population living in less than 10% of our land area because, because we all like to be near the coast. Um, and those of us who don't live in those coastal counties tend to visit them at least once or twice a year. <laughs> so we all love our coast, but, you know, we might be loving our coast almost to death in some cases. And, and there's been a real recognition that in order for people to continue to enjoy living near the coast, we need to rethink the way we do coastal development and that we need to actually think about these coastal systems. And here I'm talking about the wetlands we've been talking about, but also other systems like beaches and dunes, coral reefs and oyster reefs. All of those kinds of natural coastal ecosystems provide really important storm risk reduction and erosion protection. And uh, there's a real shift in the federal conversation, and I'm seeing it regionally as well, in terms of thinking about when we think about coastal protection, not just immediately going for some of those tried and true coastal development strategies like seawalls and dikes, but saying, hey, there's got to be other opportunities. We don't want to lose the other ecosystem services, particularly communities that are dependent on fisheries, where these provide really important fishery habitat benefits. These, these coastal ecosystems provide that habitat benefit, but also places that are really dependent on tourism, where people don't necessarily go to the coast to stare at a really big seawall. They want to be able to still be connected to the water. Um, and so the conversation really is shifting. So we have a lot more discussion of what you'll hear called green infrastructure or natural infrastructure or nature-based features. 
And, um, and sometimes it's not just the natural features. It's what I have, have called hybrid infrastructure, where you take a built component, but it also has a more natural component. And a living shoreline is a really good example of that, where you've got definitely something designed for erosion protection, but it is done with natural features like oyster reefs and, and uh, salt marshes, et cetera. So it's, it's a very exciting conversation, and I really hope that we have hit a turning point in terms of the way we think about coastal development and coastal resilience so that we include more of the ecosystem perspective. Excellent. Thank you. We're going to take a short music break, Ariana, and I hope you don't mind staying on the line for just a few minutes. And we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about exactly what you're doing with um, helping get the word out to the different agencies and um, policymakers about how to implement this on a more broad scale. So stay on the line for a moment, and listeners will come on back in just a few minutes to continue our conversation here on Ocean Currents, talking about blue carbon. Stay with us. KWMR in Point Reyes Station. My name is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And on the telephone with me, I have Dr. Ariana Sutton-Greer, and we've been talking about blue carbon. Uh, Ariana is an ecosystem science advisor with the National Ocean Service, part of NOAA. And Ariana, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear just exactly how are you applying all this incredible knowledge within your work with NOAA as an advisor? Sure. Um, so there are a lot of really exciting opportunities as the science of blue carbon has developed. So we have a better sense of what happens in these ecosystems, uh, how they function normally, and what happens when they're degraded or destroyed. There have been a lot of really exciting policy opportunities where we can apply what we know from the science to that policy setting. And I want to give a few examples. So one of them is that um, so in, in the United States, we don't have a national greenhouse gas market or carbon market. Um, but we do have some regional examples, and, and I'll try to speak to that in just a minute. And we do have the voluntary carbon market. So one of the exciting opportunities as we better understand the carbon, the carbon in these coastal wetlands is that there has been the opportunity to develop um, a methodology for how to go about getting carbon credits on the voluntary market if you're doing wetland restoration or protection. And so NOAA has supported... Um, working with Restore America's Estuaries, or RAE, and they put together a, uh, a methodology through the Verified Carbon Standard, or VCS, which was actually approved last November. And so this is super exciting. This is for all tidal wetlands, including seagrasses and mangroves. That counts as a tidal wetland, and it's for anywhere in the world. So that methodology now exists on the VCS website, and it is the, it's the process you follow if you want to apply for carbon credits for a wetland restoration project anywhere in the world. And the whole idea is that the carbon market might generate additional interest and additional revenue to support coastal restoration. Uh, and eventually, actually, coastal protection as well. Where there's current efforts being funded by NOAA and other partners uh, to develop a similar methodology uh, to be able to get carbon credits for protecting a threatened wetland. So, so that's one policy opportunity I see as being very exciting. And I, I just want to take a sidestep here briefly because it, it, it's probably very interesting to your California audience. When it comes to regional carbon markets, California is really leading the way um, in the U.S. And so that with the passage of um, AD 32 in 2006, which was the Global Warming Solutions Act, 
This actually requires California to reduce emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. And what's really neat about this policy is it's using a variety of mechanisms to get there, to do the, the emissions reduction. And this includes markets, but it also includes policies and regulations. So there's a cap-and-trade program that began in 2012, and uh, those who need to use it can offset 8% of their compliance requirements using offsets. Now, currently, there is not a wetland offset. Offsets are available in forestry, dairy digesters, destruction of ozone-depleting substances. And the proceeds from those uh, credits actually go into the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. What I think is really exciting is that California has chosen to use some of the proceeds from that Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund to fund wetland restoration. And in uh, 2015, 12 projects were started. Four of them were coastal wetland projects. Um, one of them actually was in Elkhorn Slough, which I mentioned earlier. So these are some of the first wetland restoration projects being funded with greenhouse gas funding. Um, and the, I'm really hoping that those projects inform maybe the future opportunity to have a wetland offset as part of the California system. And again, California is really leading the way on this, which is exciting to, to watch. Um, in terms of other policy examples where this is really coming up, you've got the international scene, which is really interesting. So the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is where countries report their annual emissions to. Um, so they have to report to the UNFCCC. And in 2013, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, which is sort of the scientific guidance part that goes with the UNFCCC, they released a wetlands supplement. This provides guidance to countries suggesting that um, wetlands now should be incorporated into our national greenhouse gas inventories. They were not previously included because it had been decided that there weren't enough data to support the inclusion of wetlands. But in 2013, they released guidance saying, we're not requiring this yet, but we really recommend countries that you start incorporating wetlands. And um, based on this guidance and based on support and interest here in the United States, um, we are on track so that in our 2017 submission next spring, we will um, we are planning to include coastal wetlands for the first time in that national greenhouse gas inventory. Um, this is really exciting. The U.S. is really one of the first countries in the world doing this. We're going to be able to report back to the UNFCCC to say how that process went, uh, what were our challenges, how did applying the guidance work. Um, and so we're really leading the, the, the world in this, but it's also been a very interesting learning experience for us to figure out um, what data are even needed, what data are currently available, where are our gaps, and, and has really helped us figure out uh, to some degree how we can be shaping future research to better inform that greenhouse gas inventory and really just our national accounting and understanding of carbon cycling in these coastal wetlands. Um, the, the last example I would like to... Um, point out is something else I've worked on, which is how, once we have this knowledge about the carbon in these ecosystems, how does that potentially affect the implementation of policies that are already in place? So no new policies, but existing policies. And here I'm thinking about things like um, the Clean Water Act or the Natural Resources Damage Assessment Process. Um, and I, along with some colleagues at NOAA, did an analysis to look at how would this change the way we implement those policies. And, and most of what we came up with is that right now, when we implement those policies, we focus primarily on living resources that might be affected, for example, if we decide that we need to build a road and it goes right through a wetland. Um, and so we focus on how much of that wetland is going to be destroyed 
And then we try to offset that particular living resource. So it's, for example, it's acres of um, salt marsh that might be affected. And then you look at things like were there bird's nests that were affected or other specific species, and then we need to try and offset that habitat loss. This often means that mitigation ratios are on the order of, say, two or three to one. So if you disturb one hectare, you might need to restore two or three someplace else, maybe five to one. The interesting thing is that by not incorporating what we know about the soils now and the important role that these soils play in carbon sequestration, if you disturb that wetland and the top meter of it basically gets um, disturbed enough that the carbon in it is released to the atmosphere, you're destroying what could be, it's definitely decades, if not hundreds or thousands of years worth of stored carbon. So if we were to actually fully account for the carbon benefits of these systems, it might mean mitigation ratios should be 20 to 1 or 50 to 1. And so really it could change the outcome of our decisions and it could definitely change the kinds of um, mitigation and, and restoration that we would be needing to do. So this is something we've identified as, um, as an opportunity, but also changing practice when it's standard environmental practice takes time. Um, so it's not something where you can turn that boat, that ship really quickly. However, a colleague and I have actually incorporated the carbon benefits of a salt marsh restoration that is in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's at the Sears Point site where they're doing salt marsh restoration. And we were able to incorporate into the environmental impact statement for the uh, National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, document. We were able to incorporate a discussion of the carbon benefits of the different restoration potentials, uh, potential projects that were proposed. And so what I think is great is that this sets a precedent. We can incorporate it, um, but it isn't always easy to do so because it does take a certain amount of understanding of the carbon science to incorporate it into this kind of implementation. And so there needs to be some careful thought if this is something that the U.S. wants to do more broadly on how do we provide the guidance to agencies, organizations at the national or at the local or regional level on how do you incorporate these carbon benefits into the implementation of our policies. But we do know it's possible. That's fan- <clears throat> Excuse me. That's fantastic. I wanted to that actually follows up to the last question I have in terms of how can listeners get involved and support blue carbon initiatives? The first thing that comes to mind for me, obviously, is knowledge, but also our local coastal plans. In California, we have the Coastal Act, which creates a mandate for coastal counties to manage conservation and development of coastal resources through a local coastal coastal program. Are there other ways that you feel listeners can get involved in helping to support these initiatives? Well, I wish I knew more specifically about the California example you just gave, but, but definitely if there are ways to be raising awareness, I find that one of the big challenges still is that um, the fact that these coastal wetlands are such impressive carbon sinks is not widely known. And once people start to recognize that as an additional benefit, it can help to change the conversation. So I would basically say definitely be telling your friends, your neighbors, and your elected politicians about the important role of coastal wetlands uh, in being a carbon sink, it's one more reason to love our coast, right? And uh, and communicating that's really important. Uh, another thing I would suggest is that um, we need to support coastal restoration in, in any way possible. And I think finding really innovative ways to finance that restoration is exciting. So I think California already has that really good example of how you're using the greenhouse gas reduction funds to do this. 
uh, I would be telling, again, all local and regional elected officials that you support this and that supporting additional coastal restoration is really important. And again, because one benefit is the carbon sink, but you get all these other benefits that come with those coastal wetlands. You get the habitat, the recreation, the water quality benefits, and of course, that, that resilience piece, that storm and erosion risk reduction. So really, you get a whole bunch of benefits in one. Um, if you're interested in offsetting your own emissions or your business is interested, I would be asking companies, hey, do you have a blue carbon option? Because I think the more people ask, hey, are you working on a salt marsh restoration? Could I fund that? Um, you know, there has to be a demand oftentimes, and particularly in the voluntary market. There needs to be a demand in order to derive uh, more opportunities. So if that's something of interest, be asking, hey, is there a blue carbon offset I could fund? Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention is that it, this isn't as true in the United States, um, but it does still affect U.S. customers. One of the main drivers of the loss of mangroves uh, and then, of course, the accompanying loss oftentimes of seagrasses, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia, is that there are a lot of shrimp farms going in where mangroves used to be. They cut down the mangroves, they put in shrimp ponds, and... Um, the, basically, this is driving our need, our need and, and the rest of the world's need for cheap shrimp. And so I want to mention that it's really important when you're making seafood choices, particularly when it comes to shrimp, try to buy something that is labeled sustainable. Um, try to buy local if you can, because then you know it's not coming from Southeast Asia. Or do as I've done, which is I haven't been able to find a good source of sustainable shrimp. So even though I adore shrimp, I have given them up almost entirely, basically, because I can't find a sustainable source for them. That said, I do know there are, are sustainable shrimp available. One project is in Vietnam where they're specifically doing a market, markets and mangroves project where they're supporting farmers to plant at least 50% mangrove cover. And then they get a better price for their, quote, sustainable shrimp. So I know these exist. I just haven't been able to find them in my local grocery store. So I keep asking about, you know, uh, where do these shrimp come from? And can you tell me if they're sustainable? Because unfortunately, that shrimp cocktail you might have had at the party last night, um, according to a colleague of mine at Oregon State University, could actually be having 10 times as much impact on the climate as a hamburger being harvested out of uh, the rainforest cut beef from the Amazon, for example. So really that shrimp cocktail could be having a much bigger impact. So unfortunately for all of us shrimp lovers at the moment, it's very hard to find a sustainable shrimp source that isn't having a big effect on um, blue carbon destruction. Excellent connection for shrimp. It's always been about turtles and um, trawling for me, but now I have one more reason not to eat shrimp, which is great. We don't even eat it anyway because we had to cut it out because of the turtles. So thank you so much for sharing those um, ideas, for learning more. I know for me, I'm feeling really empowered about the idea that I can share this new knowledge about the importance of these habitats, not just for habitat for animals, but for carbon. And adding that into my conversation when I educate others about the importance of these coastal wetlands for removing carbon from our atmosphere. So Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing this information with our listeners. Thank you for having me. This was great. What an interesting conversation, hearing all about the importance of our coastal wetlands for sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. We have less than 20% of these coastal ecosystem habitats on our planet, but as she mentioned, they 
take about 50% up of the carbon. So huge, huge uh, benefits for our atmosphere by helping to protect these coastal wetlands. We're going to come back in a minute, and we're going to have a new segment airing on Ocean Currents today, Positively Ocean, produced by Liz Fox of Berkeley. She produced this for Ocean Currents to focus on some of the positive stories about the ocean, and today gives a nice connection to what we've been talking about all day. Hi, this is Liz Fox at Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. This week's Blue Carbon story takes us to Richardson Bay in the northwest shallows of the San Francisco Bay. Carbon causes a problem when molecules drift from our cars and factories into the atmosphere. This combines with ocean water, making our seas more acidic, making for some big losers in the delicate balance of ocean chemistry. Acidic waters disrupt shell formation in shellfish. Even organisms as small as plankton depend on the right pH for their calciferous coat. And of course, that has a ripple effect on the food web for anything that eats zooplankton or shellfish, or anything that eats animals that eat shellfish or zooplankton, which is everything, almost. But there are some big winners. When talking about blue carbon, think green. Phytoplankton, eelgrass, kelp. These marine actors play an increasingly crucial role balancing the chemical makeup of our seas. Marine scientists estimate that on a global scale, one acre of eelgrass can absorb more than twice as much carbon than an acre of forest. Here in the Bay, San Francisco State University professor Kathy Boyer has donned scuba gear with teams of students, researchers, and environmentalists to restore eelgrass beds. They're three years into a nine-year project that aims to replenish 70 acres of Zarastra Marina. So far, their beds are thriving. Well, we have a couple of sites in the bay that have have been performing really well, and it's allowing us to expand to larger footprints over time. It's been exciting to see that those sites are doing well over multiple years. With the promising start, Boyer and her team test additional sites using small amounts of plants before sinking too many resources into areas that might not support eelgrass beds. And as the plants take root again, they start burying carbon. Scientists don't know exactly how much, though, because our regional variety of Zarastra marina grows much larger and more sparsely than eelgrass elsewhere. So while local scientists have collected the data, they're still calculating how much carbon our specific eelgrass sequesters. Besides the carbon benefits, Boyer's restoration efforts support habitats for spawning fish, mollusks, and the birds that feed on them. And what's more, voters in nine Bay Area counties passed Measure AA last June, securing $25 million a year over the next 20 years for habitat restoration. The measure passed with 69% of the vote exceeding the required two-thirds majority, and it's the first regional parcel tax to pass in California ever. It's a, a nice chunk of change that should really, really push a lot of the efforts forward around the Bay. I think that the public really appreciates restoration. I think that they see it as a hopeful way of, you know, having their place in the natural, local natural world. This is an example of how people are doing right by the ocean, folks. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things Positively Ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio, this is Liz Fox reporting in Berkeley, California.
Yay. Positively Ocean with Liz Fox focusing on eelgrass, blue carbon, the theme of today's show. And some of the main takeaways I heard were supporting local restoration efforts to help protect wetlands and restore natural water flow, um, limiting development that can happen near these areas, and being really knowledgeable about the sources of shrimp if you choose to eat shrimp, being that most shrimp comes from areas that are destroying some of these blue carbon sources. So just yet another reason to really source your seafood sustainably and really understand its source. So fantastic segment there, all about the concept of blue carbon. Ocean Currents has a brand new Twitter feed. If you are one of those people that uses Twitter, you can follow us at OceanKWMR to get information related to the Ocean Currents radio program. And I'll post some of the websites of supporting information about each show there if you're interested in getting more information and hearing more about the guest and the topic. So check that out, Ocean KWMR, for more information about Ocean Currents programs. And I love hearing from listeners. If you have ideas for topics, questions, or comments, you can email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov or tweet at OceanKWMR. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.